You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight's episode is going to be a solo episode. I had a little free time one of these past weekends where I didn't have much going on. And uh, I thought it would be fun to cover a topic that I know a lot of us have discussed at different points throughout the show. And that's fruit flies, in case you haven't figured it out from the, the uh, title of the show. And I'm going to cover really more geared towards beginner, but uh, as well as some tips that I've picked up from advanced people and whatnot. Uh, in terms of just my experiences with keeping fruit flies and culturing them at home and things like that. So uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun and uh, there's going to be a lot to cover. But before we do that, I want to, as usual, thank everyone for the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Great way to support the show. Five-star review with some nice comments. Definitely helps me out. Helps the show get out to a wider audience. And uh, if you'd like to support the show in a different way, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. The Patreon page, I have uh, two tiers. I have the $3 a month tier, which is just as, as little as $3 a month. You can show that you support the show. And for the $5 tier, $5 a month, you will get a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. And just so you guys know, the Patreon page, it just helps me defer the costs of running the website, you know, the hosting site, etc. There's, you know, there's fees for that. And it helps me maintain the equipment and basically just keep the lights on in the studio. I like to provide the listeners with an ad-free experience. I know a lot of podcasts are airing ads like crazy now. And uh, I, I just, I, I really refuse to do it. I think that it takes away from the listening experience. So uh, if you guys want to help me keep that going, the patron, you know, becoming a patron on Patreon is the easiest way to do that. Keep the show ad free. So other than all that, other than the uh, normal housekeeping stuff that I generally cover at the beginning of every episode, let's get into the topic. So if you keep dart frogs, glass frogs, small spiders, I know jumping spiders have become really popular, small chameleons, mantids, micro geckos, etc., you're probably familiar with the challenges associated with feeding these things. And some animals, either during early developmental stages or throughout their lives, will only accept the tiniest of prey items. Unfortunately, there are some limits when it comes to sourcing tiny prey items, and they can be hard, hard to come by. When I started out keeping reptiles and amphibians in the late 80s, your only choices uh, were pinhead crickets, which were really the smallest feeders available, or small insects that you might have uh, found outside, although that practice was and then generally still is frowned upon because you don't want to potentially expose your animals to things that might have uh, toxins in them, just naturally occurring toxins in certain small insects or pesticides and things like that. So what ended up happening? Well, thankfully, scientists studying genetics had already been growing what would come to be the perfect insect for our type of situation in laboratories for almost a century. They even genetically modified them to even better suit our purposes by rendering them flightless. It just took a little creative thinking to repurpose them into the feeder insects that now form the staple diet of many of the species we keep today. And that, of course, is fruit flies. Now, obviously, I don't know the exact moment when fruit flies were first fed to dart frogs or tiny mantids or what have you. In all likelihood, it happened independently many times over. But regardless of how we arrived at where we are today, Fruit flies are and will always be an easily cultured and inexpensive prey item that every dart frog, atelopus, or glass frog, or, or micro gecko keeper should have an understanding of. But despite the fact that they're easy to raise on their own, many people, beginners especially, are often intimidated by them. In fact, I've heard of many people being completely put off from keeping dart frogs, mantellas, glad frogs, etc., really because of they, the, the fact that they solely need fruit flies as a staple diet. And there is some truth behind this thought pattern, though, because 
Dart frogs, for example, and fruit flies go hand in hand, and without a good understanding of one, we can't successfully keep the other. And in fact, when someone asks me, uh, a beginner or someone who's kind of outside of the, the frog world, uh, hey, Dan, I want to start off with uh, dart frogs. Well, my first response almost always is get good at culturing fruit flies. So what's the issue, though? Well, there can be many. How do I get started? Which species do I culture? Do I make my own media or do I buy it? How do I handle escapes? And finally, what do I do if uh, the infamous words, if my culture crashes? Well, for tonight's episode, like I said, I'm going to share some of my experiences with fruit flies with you, and I hope that it'll take some of that mystery away. My goal here is to provide some background information and uh, some insights that I hope will aid beginners and intermediates ease into the fruit fly world. I'm not going to cover every single detail as there are, I'm sure, people out there who are much more well-versed in the individual varieties, mutations, and overall fruit fly biology than I am. But nonetheless, I'm sure that there will be plenty of practical information here that can be easily applied in most situations. I will say right off the bat, though, that individual methods of raising fruit flies can vary to some degree. And many people will... Uh, look, people have their own methods, and that's fine. People will ardently stick to their own secret recipes. They may swear by the use of only pre-made media. Some will only use coffee filters in their cultures, and some will only use Excelsior. It runs the gambit. So if you're listening and you're using a different method than I cover in the episode tonight, and you're getting good results, that's totally fine. Uh, if it works for you, by all means, use your trusted methods. I promise I won't be offended. In fact, I encourage the listeners to investigate on your own and check out as many different sources as you can. Define a method that works for you. All right. There's plenty of people out there that I share. Uh, I, I you know I share and compare methods with out there in the real world. You should do so as well. But like I said, I hope that you can get something tonight from me sharing mine with you directly. So let's begin with why fruit flies. As I stated before, there are some species that will only take the smallest prey items, and we have no choice but to abide that abide by that fact if we're going to keep them successfully. We have to feed them what they will eat. This in and of itself can be a challenge, but in my opinion, challenges only make the hobby more rewarding. Think of the vivarium, the frogs, and the feeders as one big holistic experience. Raising the frogs, tending to the plants, and farming your own feeders is realistically what this is all about. And once you become self-sufficient, you'll not only save money saving on buying feeders, but you'll also save time and aggravation. No more running out to big box stores in a snowstorm hoping that they'll have something in stock. No more dealing with potential shipping delays and DOAs, which can happen sometimes when you're ordering online. It's happened to me before. If you prepare properly and you get your methods down, you'll have almost an inexhaustible source of feeders that will go on into perpetuity. It's very unlikely that you'll be caught at some point in a pinch where you have no feeders at all. But this can happen in certain circumstances, but I'll touch more on that later. Also, it's worth mentioning that your decision to keep fruit flies will also give you the foundation to keep many of the other small species that people in the general herb community might otherwise be intimidated to keep as well. So you'll also have some bragging rights when it comes to keeping small species. And if dart frogs don't suit you anymore, you, you're, let's just say you're listening to this podcast and you're into dart frogs, there's a whole world of other creatures that will do just fine on fruit flies. So that's another thing to consider. Plus, it's also worth noting again that fruit flies are probably the easiest prey item for the average person to breed at home. So if you want to keep a herp, but you are creeped out by crickets, roaches, rodents, etc., fruit flies are a good alternative for you. 
the upfront costs are relatively low, and you don't have to do any grand scale production. They're also, in my opinion, less work than trying to breed crickets and rodents. If done right, they have almost no smell. They mature quickly enough that you can have a full breeding population in as little as a few weeks. And I'll I'll get into some of the negatives, but right now let's just continue to focus on the positives. First, let's get into price point and how much money you can save by culturing your own flies. Before the pandemic started in 2020, I had, and coincidentally, this was not me preparing for it or anything, this was just a happy coincidence, I had bought a case of 500 32-ounce deli cups with fabric lids and a big bale of Excelsior, which was, I'm not really sure of the exact weight or whatnot, but it was basically like a two-foot by two-foot by two-foot bale. And I got all of this for about $100 American. Excluding the cost of the actual media itself, that boils down to around 20 cents a culture. Now compare that with 10 to $15 for a pre-made culture, and that should be incentive enough to at least try culturing on your own. With my collection of about 20 frogs, I've barely used even half of the supplies in three years. So if you have one or two frogs, the savings might not necessarily be justified right off the bat, but remember that the one-time investment in supplies will pay off over time, and in theory, if you're making three cultures every two weeks for a, a pair or a trio of dart frogs at the prices and the quantities that I just mentioned, you won't need to buy cups, lids, or Excelsior for over six years. Now imagine that, $100, a one-time purchase, excluding the cost of media, is honestly enough to justify buying in bulk right off the bat. Six years, my friends, all right, for two or three dart frogs. However, some of us do like to pay for, pay, pay for convenience, and there's nothing wrong with buying pre-made cultures. My only issue with this is that, as I hinted to earlier, circumstances can happen where your local shop might be out, the upcoming expo gets canceled, which has happened a lot here in New York. I usually like to stock up on some fresh cultures at expos, but there hasn't been one for three years. Or if you have an online vendor that has an issue with shipping, say there's a snowstorm or a heat wave or something like that. So at the very least, even if you don't want to necessarily culture your own uh, culture your own flies on the regular, at least have a grasp of the fundamentals in case that the need should prevent, present itself. Now, let's get on to the flies themselves. So what do we have available to us? Well, in the hobby, we essentially have two species to work with. We have Drosophila melanogaster and the slightly larger Drosophila heidei. There are also different varieties of each species possessing different mutations. Uh, there are the wingless, there's Turkish gliders, there's um, ones that don't, well, Turkish gliders don't really fly, they kind of glide. Species that have different eye colors, etc. And then there's a whole bunch more that are outside the realm of what we consider practical for the hobby purpose, but they're in, in lab conditions. Regardless, though, we always want to know that we're dealing with a flightless variety. So don't get any ideas about culturing your own feeders from wild flies. In fact, keep wildflies as far away from those cultures as possible. Many of the flightless genes that are at work are recessive, and in some cases, if a wild fly gets into your culture and breeds with the flightless ones, that dominant trait will take over and you'll end up with a culture full of flyers before you know it. I've seen it happen firsthand, and I can assure you it's pretty awful when it does happen. Regardless of which species you choose, though, remember both are good feeders, and Hydei has a little bit, uh, a little bit meatier because they're a bit bigger. But essentially, there's really only two differences, and that's just the size and the life cycle. Either of which may or may not suit your particular needs. Bear in mind, though, many people keep both species, which can be a wise decision when we consider the different life cycles, and also to give the frogs that you keep a varied diet. 
So as far as the differences go, let's start off with size. As size goes, it's obviously the easiest uh, distinction to make between the two. Melanogaster is about one sixteenth of an inch, and Heidi I are about an eighth of an inch. I'm not 100% sure what that translate in, uh, what that translate into into the metric system. Uh, I was never very good at it, so for my international listeners, I apologize, you have to bear with me. So if you're working with very, very small froglets, such as, say, Ranatomea or Pamilio, you may want to opt for Melanogaster. For everything else, Heidi works fine. Although you can feed bigger frogs Melanogaster their whole lives, you may find it easier and a little bit more productive in the long term to work with larger Heidi because I can tell you a group of Minterbellus is going to eat a lot more quantity-wise than a small little Ranatomea or a small little Epipetobates. So uh, sometimes bigger is better. Now, as far as the life cycle differences between the two, that gets a little bit more complicated than size, obviously. To put it simply, though, Melanogaster produce adult flies faster during the life of a culture as they have a shorter reproductive cycle and lifespan. You may get two crops of adults during the culture's four to six week shelf life. It takes a melanogaster culture about 12 to 15 days at room temperature to mature and start producing, and then you'll have a fairly consistent supply of flies to feed off uh, for a few weeks with all life cycle, uh, with all stages from egg to maggot to pupae to adult happening all at once. Hydei, by contrast, have a longer boom and bust cycle. And it takes about 21 days for a fresh culture to start producing. It's called the boom or bust because when all the flies mature, you'll generally get a huge boom of them, usually overnight or maybe over the course of two or three days. This can be more challenging for the beginner, though, when it, as opposed to melanogaster, because you'll have to time your high DI cultures in such a way that you always have flies available as needed. If not timed correctly, you may have a culture sitting for a few weeks and producing nothing while you have hungry, waiting frogs. So if, you're, if it's your first foray into the game, you may want to start off with Melanogaster since you'll have more flies producing consistently and quickly. With Melanogaster, you'll also have a steadier supply of adults throughout the life of the culture as they breed every few days. With Hydei, you'll have that big boom after about two and a half to, on average, more like three weeks. And once they're exhausted, you'll usually have to trash the culture since there won't be much left to it. By trash, I don't necessarily mean throw it away, but I'll get more into that later because there are some things that you can do with an old culture before you throw it away. Differences in life cycle are a good reason to keep a few cultures of each species. This way, if you're waiting for that big Hydei culture to get started by week three, you can still have some Melanogasters ready to go by week two. Even if they're not your primary feeder, you can kind of have them as a backup. Now, onto a few additional variables. Obviously, there's more to the biology and development of fruit flies than I can cover in this podcast episode, but it's important to note that regardless of the species, productivity and maturation rates can vary depending on certain things, in particular humidity, temperature, the presence of mites, and the quality of the media used. Ideally, though, anywhere around 74 to 78 degrees seems to be optimal. Too hot and too cold will slow down or halt development altogether. Anything that's consistently over 80 degrees, or uh, 27 degrees Celsius, I'm trying to get metric again, may kill your cultures and may stop development altogether. And at the worst, if, well, I guess it, there's nothing worse than them all dying, but it could result in flyers, since many of those genetic mutations related to flightlessness will default back to normal at higher temperatures. That's another situation where I've seen. 
I had a culture of flies that I kept over a, a, a warm lamp that was probably in excess of 85, 90 degrees. And when I opened it up a few days later, I had flyers. So if you can't keep your ambient temperatures around the mid-70s, you may want to make some adjustments to your home environment or at the worst, consider another alternative. Although I should say that many of the animals that consume fruit flies also enjoy the same temperatures that you're keeping the flies at anyway. So if your house is over 85 degrees or 30 degrees Celsius, you probably should consider keeping different animals altogether. Because if you keep your dart frogs in a room that goes over 85, they're not going to do particularly well anyway. So if that's the case, uh, go for that bearded dragon or that molly Euromastix. That'll be your game. Um, <laughs> as far as humidity goes, 70 to between 60 to 70 seems to work fine, which is again similar similar to what the animals we're feeding our flies seem to do well at, although it's a little bit higher. We don't want to make our media dry out, so adequate humidity will also help keep your culture longer. Okay. In fact, the hardest time I have with cultures here in New York is during the winter when there's really low ambient humidity in the house. When I have the heat going on, it gets very, very dry. And I have to make my cultures a little bit more moist than the rest of the year just so that they don't dry out quicker. I also don't get the same amount of production during these periods, which I'm assuming, and from what I've heard from everybody else, is a function of the lower relative humidity. So if in my basement during the summer it's um, 60% humidity and I get good production, oh, in the winter it's maybe down closer to 30, which uh, can really make your fruit fly cultures uh, suffer. So that's another thing that you might want to plan for if you can't fully control your ambient conditions. So now, assuming I've sold you on the idea of, of getting into culturing your own flies, how do you get started? Well, if you're looking to get started, the only place you can realistically begin is with an existing culture. There's many online vendors that will sell either freshly seeded or producing cultures. You can also get them from uh, your local shop or if you have a friend, whatever. They're, they're not that difficult to get. Only, well, <laughs> when you really need one, they can be difficult to get, but... Uh, there's many, like I said, many online vendors that sell freshly seeded or producing. If not, pick one up in an expo, like I said, local shop. You'll usually have a choice between a freshly seeded culture which isn't producing and one that already is producing. That's generally the options that you'll have. Either way, it doesn't matter if you're just starting out, but if you have animals to feed, go with the producing culture so that you'll have a supply on hand immediately. If you have some time to spare and you want to really get an idea of how the life cycle works just through observation, start off with a newly seeded culture. It'll give you a chance to fully observe the life cycle and get an idea of what to expect. Don't be discouraged, though, if you buy a culture with only a few flies in it. And this is originally one of the things that I was leery of. I thought that less flies in the original culture would equal less production, and that's not always the case. I found that actually adding too many flies to a new culture will cause it to fail faster, at least in my experience. So a new culture with 20 to 30 flies in a regular 32-ounce deli cup generally to me seems like a good start. But you'll have to be patient. And as you watch the culture develop, there's a couple of things to check out for to get an idea of how it's progressing. So obviously we start out with a reasonably small number of flies, fresh media, etc., Excelsior, whatever is in there. Look at the media. Okay, as the culture ages, in a brand new media, you'll first notice that the media is generally just kind of a light tan color and it have the consistency of, uh, say, maybe like thick ap- applesauce or, or pudding, something like that. And it should be filled about a third to halfway up the deli cup. There's other media colors out there, but usually those are used in lab settings. So the tan is generally the most common of what you'll see. The best way to tell where the culture is in terms of productivity is to look at the media and examine it for two different layers. 
When maggots are there, you'll see a distinct dark band at the top of the media. If you look closely, you'll see maggots feeding as they churn it over. When looking at a producing culture, ask the vendor when it was seeded. It may help you plan when the culture will boom, especially with Hydeide. Avoid buying dried-out cultures, even if they have a lot of flies, because they're probably at the end of their lives. These are generally only good for feeding off and then discarding. Once you have a decent amount of flies in a cup, you're ready to take some out and seed some into your very own after you've let it run its course. So which materials do you need, though? Well, if you're ready to make your own and you've watched the whole life cycle take place, you've seen a culture go from, from being freshly seeded to booming to, I guess, kind of dying off, we should make a grocery list of what you need. So for starters, the first thing you're going to need is to be some sort of a container to rear them in, and nothing beats the good old-fashioned clear 32-ounce deli cups. They're cheap if bought in bulk. They can be washed and reused again if that's something that you're into. Make sure, though, that if you have bought them in bulk, you make sure that you get the matching lids, since there can be mismatches where one doesn't necessarily fit the other. So if you're going to buy cups, buy lids from the same vendor just to make sure that they fit. I have a preference for the fabric lids, which have uh, almost like a, like a thin fabric, as opposed to punch lids, which, which also can work very well. Again, it's a matter of what's available in personal preference. I just find the fabrics to be a little bit cheaper. You'll find, though, that fabric lids are not reusable, though. They just get so filthy that it's not, it's not even worthwhile to try and clean them. The punctured lids you can wash out. So if you want this to be a sustainable thing, uh, again, I know I said that you could save big in bulk, but... I suppose if you were just going to culture a small amount, you could buy those materials and then just continue washing them out and cleaning them with soap and water and then reusing them. Uh, as for your DIY people, I will say that when it comes to lids, I, I would discourage you from making your own. I tried it once and it was a long and thankless process. It took me like 15 minutes just to puncture, puncture holes in one lid. And uh, it's a lot of work for a little payoff. So don't bother. And if you get the whole thing wrong, I can assure you, you'll have issues with ventilation or you'll have flies escape. So if you're going to commit to it, just buy the lids. Another alternative to the deli cups is disposable plastic cups. I've seen videos of youth of this on YouTube and I've heard people use this method. Essentially, these are red plastic disposable drinking cups, uh, the kind that you'd see at like a barbecue or a keg party. They're usually red and you can cover them with a nylon stocking instead of a plastic lid. Uh, and then you usually rubber band it onto the top. I don't really like this. I think that they're too small, and I don't like the fact that I can't see what's going on inside. So people who use this method, again, that's, that's totally cool. It's just not for me. Uh, it may work for you. I know some people who work on a very, very grand scale that use this method, particularly because their red cups are a little bit cheaper. But again, it's six to one, half a dozen of the other. I personally wouldn't recommend this method, but if you're using it and it works for you, by all means, go ahead. So next, we're going to need something to put into the media that it's going to, that's going to give the flies a surface to climb around on. The maggots will use the sides of the cup to climb up and pupate. So it's really not for them, it's for the flies. And generally, you'll see something in a pre-made culture that looks like straw or wadded up paper, etc. The most popular choice is uh, aspen wood wool, known as excelsior. It's commonly used as a packing material, and if you remember the infamous 1980s uh, Christmas classic, A Christmas Story, this was the uh, material that the infamous leg lamp was, was packed in when Ralphie's dad opened up the crate. So it's a common packing material because it's generally pretty cheap. If you use wood wool, wood wool, make sure that you avoid pine, cedar, or anything similar as they have pesticidal oils. 
Uh, if you'll notice, cedar is, is, is definitely a no-no. So is pine. The reason people use these materials is because they have insecticidal properties. Uh, cedar closet, you don't get moths in there that wreck your clothes. So go with aspen or a similar hardwood. And I always go with the undyed kind. I've seen dyed varieties. I'm not sure if the dye would affect the flies or the frogs, but why chance it? So I always try to go with natural as possible. You can also use corrugated packing paper or unbleached uh, coffee filters. The, with the coffee filters, you kind of want to roll them up into a point and just sort of plant them in the media, almost like you would plant little flowers uh, with the round end facing up. The Excelsior, you can just wad up and force it down into the media. Uh, you want to force it down enough, though, that when the media does dry up a little bit, the Excelsior stays in place and doesn't fall out when you turn the cup over to dump your flies in. My preference has always been Excelsior since it holds up better in the moist media. I find that the coffee filters tend to wick a lot of the moisture up and kind of get a little bit weak. But if you prefer coffee filters, then again, by all means, use them. I know uh, Travis from TCS. I know he uses coffee filters. He and I had a long talk about it once. Uh, it works very well for him. Again, there's there's no right or wrong. The Excelsior is just my preference. But if you want to use coffee filters, people have been doing that, I think, even long before we had access to Excelsior. So the most important part is, though, you want to give those adult flies extra surface area to climb around on so that they're not crowded and they're not getting stuck into the media. So that's the whole rationale behind having to put something in there. Remember, the maggots aren't going to use it, but the adult flies will. So we have our enclosure, we have our cup, etc., and now we need to feed our flies because an army marches on its stomach, right? So fruit flies feed on the microbes and the sugar that's found in the media. How much of the nutrients they take in, metabolize, and pass on to the frogs that consume them, uh, that's an interesting topic, and it's one that I'd like to develop a little bit later. But there isn't a tremendous amount of, uh, there isn't a tremendous amount of information out there. In human and more common pet foods, such as, as dog and cat foods, and even some more commercially available reptile foods, etc., there's an analysis of the nutritional content and how they relate to daily recommended allowances. The problem is we don't have the same understanding when it comes to frogs, so we have to make educated guesses based on whatever science is available. We know that we can't fully recreate a wild diet in captivity, so we aim to provide our captive animals with as many nutrients as we can, and obviously that shouldn't necessarily apply to the animals in general, but also to the feeders. It's also generally accepted as the norm that we dust our flies with supplements immediately before feeding anyway, just to make up any discrepancies. But regardless, we should we should aim to provide our flies with as healthy and a robust as media as possible. So what makes a good media? Well, if we want to measure what makes a good media, we have to think about one that lasts long enough to support the fly's full life cycle of about a month without spoiling. It should contain enough nutrients and sugars. It shouldn't spoil or uh, fail to produce. And there's a few other concerns as well. And again, it really depends on, like I said, just, just the production and the longevity of the culture. That's really what you want. There's a few commercially made medias available. And if you want to use them, by all means, do so. Uh, like I said, even if you want to stop listening at this point and just, you know, apply the, uh, <laughs> apply the culture and techniques I went through so far and use your own regular media, that's totally cool. I know a lot of people out there who use commercially available media and there's nothing wrong with that. And it's worthwhile to note that most have been developed over years of trial and error by companies and individuals that have had decades of work and experience under their belts. I will say that among commercial medias, I have a preference for the Rapashi Superfly 
although it is on the expensive side. But of course, I, I do also regularly make my own. I also like to vary the ingredients in the same way that wild insects would get a variety in their diet as well. My rationale is that you are what you eat, so it can't hurt to vary the feeder's diets to an extent. My personal recipe is as follows. And again, I'm going to preface this by just saying this is my personal, rep- my personal recipe. I start out with two boxes of plain instant mashed potato flakes, which you can generally get at a grocery store or online. Uh, I, I just don't put anything that has like butter or any other kind of odd additives in it. Uh, together, it equals about 27 ounces. I add about eight ounces of powdered sugar and two thirds of a cup of brewer's yeast. In fact, just to give you a quick story of how I got into culturing my own media, I had originally ordered a big bag of media from a vendor, and what I ended up getting was a big bag of brewer's yeast, which was kind of expensive, so I didn't want to throw the yeast out, and I thought the best way to make use of it would be to start making my own cultures, which is what I ended up doing. I know some people use different things. I know some people use yeast for either Melagaster or Heidi Eye. I just kind of stick it in both, but... I also add some cinnamon to deter mold growth, and I'll add a few sprinkles of paprika and uh, some rapashi super pig in there as well as a, as a carotenoid a supplement. I mix it together in a big bowl, and I store it in the freezer. Now that's it. Now, as I said before, I do like to vary my ingredients, so I will add a few other odds and ends. I've started adding powdered spirulina, uh, powdered sweet potato, and powdered banana. When it comes time to mix it up, I'll also uh, add a little bit of... Um, uh, certain things like, uh, if I have some carrots, etc., things like that, I might grind up a little bit of that in there. And then I'm going to add a few parts of apple cider vinegar, which I generally add cold, which also helps me avoid mold. Then I'll add some boiling water and it's really just enough to make it have the right consistency. I prefer mine to have the texture of really, really moist mashed potatoes or almost chocolate pudding. If it's really dry in the house, I'll leave it wetter. Uh, I only use... I only use the vinegar now because I've just it's worked out better for me. I've had used I've only used water in the past. My problems were that after a few days, especially if it was dry, it molded over. I started using the vinegar instead, and that stopped entirely. And the flies seemed to like it. Once my meaty is made, I stuff my excelsior way way down deep into the bottom and give it a little twist. This helps it stay secure. I put the lid on and I store it away from other cultures until it's cool, usually a day or so. After that, I will add some uh, whatever else it is that I need to do, and then I put the flies in, and that's basically that's basically it. So now that we've made everything, we've got our cultures ready. How do we store them? Well, as I said before, the mid seventy to sixty area humidity that seems to be the sweet spot. So that's going to kind of determine where you store your cultures. Uh, also, avoid avoid direct sunlight and drafts. And uh, give the flies a day or night cycle. It may seem silly, but there has been some studies done on fruit flies and their circadian rhythms, and they do benefit from a normal day to night cycle. Store fresh cultures away from old cultures, which is also important. You're less likely to get mite contamination. I'll get more into mites in a minute since they are unavoidable, but do everything you can to keep them away. It may help to label your cultures as well with the date that they were made, just to give you a reference point in terms of how long it takes to finally produce. I used to do that, but I don't do it anymore because I kind of just have an idea of where my rotation is. But I know some people who have really, really large collections will label them. Eventually, once the flies have settled in and started to reproduce, like I said, you'll see that distinct band in the media. You'll see maggots start to wiggle up the side of the cup, they'll pupate, and then eventually you'll have your flies. 
I usually wait a few days after a big boom to start feeding the flies off and seed new cultures. I've heard different things about sex ratios being heavily female the first few days. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, so I'm sure someone out there can kind of direct me accordingly, but I always err on the side of caution and let a culture really kind of go for a couple of days before I seed it off, just so that I know I've gotten a fair representation of all the genders in there. So to touch on mites, which I kind of hinted at altogether, sure, but let's let's get into it now. We're talking about grain mites, and grain mites are they're ubiquitous, and everyone is going to get them at some point. They're about the size of a period at the end of a sentence. They're generally pale, pale yellow to maybe a light brown, and they are definitely not maggots. I remember the first time I saw them, and I thought that they were just tiny maggots crawling about, but after a while, I had no problem IDing them, and after a while, you will too. Although they aren't predatory, they can crash your culture by outcompeting the maggots for the media, and they will quickly dry it out and exhaust it. So if you're looking at a brand new culture that doesn't even have any maggots in it, and you're seeing mites, uh, you may want to rethink it, because they're probably going to outcompete you, and that culture you might want to just write off as a loss. The good news is the life cycle of the grain mite is generally longer than your flies. So if you time it right, like I said, and you're ready to trash those cultures by the time the mites have started growing, which is usually around the four-week mark, then you're, then, you're, then you're in the good. But they can do a lot of damage if they piggyback their way into a fresh culture on your seeded flies. So if you get that mite-ridden culture, you know, I just said it, I'll say it again. Uh, if it looks mighty and you're not getting any flies, just trash it and start over. The mites will be on the flies when you seed them from one culture to the next, which is another thing that kind of piggyback their way in. So try to seed from cultures that are very, very low on mites or are just really freshly produced. It can be tough. So again, it's one of those things that's going to kind of be trial and error. I like to take the really mighty cultures and not pull anything off of them. But once you get into momentum and you've kind of got a routine going, you'll generally know when the mites are going to start showing up in numbers that's going to be um, not consistent with what you want. Can we prevent mites altogether? Well, the simple answer is no. It's going to happen, like I said, whether you like it or not. But there are some measures you can take. The first is just dusting your flies with calcium supplement, putting them in a kitchen strainer over a basin, cover the strainer so that they can't escape, and position it so that the flies can just groom themselves and hopefully groom off some of those little mites that might be on them. I've tried this myself, but I can't really be sure of its effect because uh, it's a little bit of work, and I found that I've never been able to completely get rid of mites. So try it. Some people set their cultures up in such a way that they do this with every every transfer. Uh, again, I'm not 100% sure. I've heard that it works. I can't see why it wouldn't. But uh, to me, it's a bit of a time-consuming process, so I generally don't bother with it. I'm more inclined to just time my cultures a little bit a little bit better. Some people set their cultures on mite paper, which is just an adhesive paper that some people set uh, you know, on the surface that they keep their cultures on. I believe you could also use contact paper or any type of adhesive. The rationale is the mites will just sort of get stuck to it and won't be able to go from culture to culture. Some people also like to set their cultures in an inch of water uh, in, say, like a long Rubbermaid container with about an inch or so between the tops. The mice can't jump, they can't fly, but since they travel between cups, and even on other flies, uh, you want to take you want to take the steps to lessen any kind of contact. And I can understand the water thing working too, although I haven't really heard anything that's 100% effective. Some people use diametaceous earth, and uh, I'm cautious about this just because of the potential for respiratory harm. 
yeah, I know that there's food grade available, but I personally don't trust it. Uh, here in the U.S., OSHA does list uh, silica as, which, well, it's, I don't want to get too into it, but all right. But for those of you who are unfamiliar, diametaceous earth is made of these little tiny fossilized organisms called diatoms. They're small crushed up organisms whose remains are razor sharp on a microscopic level. And they do a great job at slicing everything up from mites up to big caterpillars. And, and it's eventually uses as a, uh, as a non-chemical pesticide. So I'm a little bit reluctant to recommend that to people because if you inhale it, even if it is food grade, again, I would, I, I personally wouldn't be comfortable doing it. So, I mean, when I handle it at work for pesticide purposes, I always just use a mask and gloves. But uh, again, people do it. It's, it's a matter of choice. It's just not a choice that I would personally use. And uh, again, simplest way to avoid mites is if, if a culture is overly mighty, don't seed through it. And the other thing is some people like myself also become sensitive to mites. I kind of get itchy. I kind of get a little bit of... um a little bit of a runny nose if I'm handling cultures that are really old and have a lot of mites in them. It could also be the frass from the flies. I'm not sure, but if I don't feel comfortable with a culture, I just get rid of it. You know, look, they're they're fruit flies. They're not going to go extinct. You can always get more of them. And if you feel like you're having an issue with mites, just you can just trash everything and start over. But remember, the other thing is the mites aren't going to hurt your dart frogs. So uh, they can be a nuisance. They then obviously they're not going to replace fruit flies, but. Um, they're not going to hurt you, frogs. So if you do end up getting mites in the cultures and they're piggybacking their way into your enclosures, odds are the frogs are going to eat them anyway. And now since we're on the negatives, well, I might as well cover another one, which isn't as bad as the mites, but it can be equally unnerving. Escapees. Depending on your transfer methods and how escape-proof your vivariums are, you're going to have to deal with some escapees. I'm admittedly a little sloppy, uh, so I end up with a lot of rogue flies. I'm, I'm 100% honest. I'm a little bit sloppy. Uh, I think the hydei are the worst as they generally head straight for a moisture source, which in my case is either a bathroom or my laundry room. Either way, no one wants to see flies or other creatures in these places, so you're going to need to make something to kind of catch those extra flies. I have a reasonable fly trap situation that I set up. Uh, essentially what I do is I take a some sort of a container, usually like an old 32-ounce deli cup, fill it about halfway with vinegar, Mix in a little, little couple of drops of dish soap to break up the surface tension. Cover it with plastic wrap, or I think in the UK you guys call it cling film, and poke a few holes through it with a pan or a paper clip. The flies will be attracted to the vinegar, they'll climb down the holes, and then they'll, they'll drown. I'll keep a few traps around, and they're pretty good at collecting and killing unwanted flies. If it sounds too complex, or even if you want to make it a little bit simpler, you can just take an old milk jug and fill the bottom with two inches of vinegar. And uh, they'll get lost in the drug and they'll get lost in the jug and just drown. Uh, I have a actually have a gallon jug of vinegar just sitting on top of my refrigerator in my frog room, and you'd be surprised how many flies will just make it in there and just dry even with and just die even without the um, the soap added in. But uh, it also helps to have a good hand vacuum or a dustbuster on hand to clean up dead flies. It's, you're going to find them; it's inevitable. And finally, you are going to have to accept the fact that you're going to have spiders. Uh, spiders are going to show up. And uh, with most of the conditions around your vivariums anyway, and a steady source of supply, a uh, steady source of, of uh, constant flies, house spiders are going to be your new roommates, whether you like it or not. So if you're a little bit of an arachnophobe, uh, again, something to consider. You're going to have spiders. And in my opinion, honestly, I think the spiders are more of a nuisance than the dead flies because their webs are just a real nightmare to clean out. and um, 
there's other tools you're going to need as well. One of my, honestly, one of my biggest husband, husbandry tools is just a feather duster to get in and just dust out the cobwebs and uh, any dead flies from my lights and my screen tops, etc. So one more thing to think of. So now that we've made it through the whole process, including the good, the bad, and ugly, how do we develop a routine and how many cultures should we have going? I have a motto. My motto is for every pair or trio of frogs that you have, use the rule of three. And this is the little mnemonic that I came up to it. All right. So it's one to breed, one to seed, and one to feed. All right. Fruit flies can be pretty predictable, but sometimes things happen. And I feel like it's wise to go by the rule of three so that you have, uh, you have a backup. Have three cultures available with one at each stage of development. Okay. Now, remember, the cycles can take a few weeks, so you can't have frogs eating only once every 21 days if you have Hydei, for example. So have one culture that's just started for flies to breed and mature in. Have one that is producing mature adults that is ready to be seeded, in, say, seeded into a new culture, say about, you know, towards the middle to end. And have one that is booming with enough adults to feed off before retiring that culture altogether. That's the culture that, like I said before, you might have some might starting to take over and you might not necessarily want to use that one to seed into a new one. So this way, if there's a failure at some point, you'll have two backups. And at this rate, you should only need to make one culture, uh, one new culture every week or two. It also can't hurt to make make sure that you have some reserves. If you have a large collection, you'll need to make more anyway. So in that case, these roles don't necessarily apply, but you have to be a little bit more flexible. I personally keep around 20 dart frogs at the moment, but I'm able to get by making about six cultures a week. I'm also using Hydei at the moment, so I have some larger frogs that also take crickets, so I don't necessarily need to make the same as someone who might keep, say, only uh, Pumilia or something like that. Uh, I also don't have the same demand that uh, someone uh, just using Melanogaster might have either. Uh, for example, uh, if my large Phyllobates species... I could dump a whole producing cup of melanogaster in there and then they'll be gone in a second. Whereas uh, I might get twice that out of the Hydei just because the Hydei are large. So again, another thing to consider when you pick on a pick on a species. So to end with, uh, I think that it would be wise to think about, again, what your routine is going to be like and always have something on hand that has uh, a different life cycle just so that you have one in reserve. And that's really just the safest way to do it. And uh, another couple of tips is it's always a good idea to have Lifeline. If you have a buddy who lives in the neighborhood or close by, uh, hey, listen, my 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 culture's crashed. You know what do I do? Um, yeah, you know what? Actually, let's yeah, let's spend a little time talking about crashes because that's really the worst thing that can happen. So, what can cause a culture to crash? Mites can cause a culture to crash if they take over too early. Uh, infertile flies, which can be affected by things like again excessive heat excessive cold not necessarily infertile but they just won't produce so extreme temperatures lack of adequate humidity or too much humidity uh, so if it's too dry the media is going to dry out the flies won't have any source of moisture too moist you might get more issues with with fungus and and things like that you'll just you don't want it too much and if and it's also if the media is too wet your flies will actually drown in it so that's another thing to avoid um, other reasons a culture might crash could also just be keeper error. You wait too long and you've got flies that just, you know, might, might necessarily, might be near the end of their life cycle and they're just not going to produce as many offspring that might th- survive. There's a number of possibilities, but like I said, once you get the hang of the routine and the timing, 
then it really shouldn't be a problem. Uh, and last, obviously, we're not going to really include crazy things that might cause a culture to crash, like, um, uh, you know, just like a natural disaster or things like that, where you've got no heat in your house. But, you know, hopefully that never happens to you anyway. So good idea is have a lifeline, have a buddy, have someone who can spot you a couple of cultures if need be. And uh, periodically, another thing that I found might happen is you might lose productivity over time if you don't introduce a little bit of fresh genetics. So that's another thing that I've done every so often is maybe once or twice a year, I'll buy a a new culture from someone, you know, from, from a vendor or someone like that, just to add a little bit more genetic diversity. I've just found for some reason that after a while, they'll kind of, you won't get the same production uh, as you did originally. And just by adding a little bit of fresh DNA in there, at least in my, my opinion, my experience, again, I can't quite quantify that, but uh, I found that adding a little bit of fresh blood in there every so often will help you out. So whether you want to get that from an online vendor or you want to get it from a buddy that you trade with, it's entirely up to you. So last thing, uh, after we talked about the crash, obviously, which wasn't supposed to be the last thing, is what to do with an old culture. If you've got excessive amounts of mites, I say throw it away. If you don't, and you don't really have much in the way of production, there's still stuff going on in there. And by this, I'm talking about any few files that are left over and any late coming maggots. So what I like to do is if my culture doesn't look too crazy mighty, I'll take it and I'll just put it on its side inside the vivarium and I'll just let the frogs have at it. And all those maggots, those extra flies, anything like that, they'll just, they'll spend days there just picking every little thing out. And in my opinion, it's a great way to put on weight with frogs that might be a little bit undernourished or fresh froglets. Because now you've got a producing feeding station. I know a lot of people like to stick little banana pucks and stuff like that inside the enclosures to get flies to go to, to go towards it. I don't like that. I found that what happens is if you, if I put a little piece of banana in my enclosure, it, it's rotted or dry. Something happens to it within a day or so. So those flies aren't really going to be able to make their whole lifestyle through it. I've actually left old cultures in enclosures for anywhere up to a week to a week and a half after they stop producing. And you'll still get the odd maggot or the odd, you know, a fly that might just might've been in the vivarium, laid some eggs and then they matured and hatched. You really can't, you really can't go wrong. I mean, like I said, those extra maggots are a lot of nutrition for frogs. It's great for putting on weight. And then once it looks like it's completely kicked, pull it out and throw it away. Obviously, make sure the frog isn't still in there. And that's it. So, you know, from the beginning to end, you could probably get about six weeks of nutrition. Well, not six weeks of nutrition, but you could probably get six weeks out of a culture if you kind of place it in the enclosure at the end. And one last tip I will mention to you. And this is kind of uh, something that I've been thinking about myself after having a couple of conversations with different people who work with, uh, who have the experiences with uh, supplementation and nutrition, and particularly with wild dart frogs, is that if the maggots and flies are pulling all the nutrition out of a culture as they mature, so like I said, for example, with Heidi Eye, uh, let's say that by th- let's just say after 21 days the media has been in there for three weeks and you're starting to get adults come out. Well, how much of the nutrition etc has been pulled out of that media? So what I've taken to doing is I've taken to making a fresh culture, the same way I would. Sometimes I'll add a little bit of extra. Sometimes I'll just do a, a mix of mashed sweet potato or I'll do a mix of mashed banana or what have you. I'll take a whole bunch of flies, dump them in that cup, cover it, leave that for two days, and let them just feed off of it. Let them, I guess the term people like to use is gut load themselves. 
so that they're eating fresh media that hasn't had any nutrition pulled from it. My idea is that hopefully they're getting everything fresh and as, as, as nutritious as possible, as opposed to a culture that might be depleted, have old flies, have mold, have mites, whatever, have all that junk in it. And then what I'll do is I'll feed that, I'll, I'll dust them obviously and supplement them and then feed them off the next day and then kind of repeat, kind of repeat that cycle. And again, my hope is that by doing that, I don't do it every time, but maybe by doing that every third or fourth feed, hopefully I'm adding a little bit of additional nutrition into those flies that will transfer into the frogs. But that remains to be seen. So other than that, again, like I said, if you have different methods than I do, that's totally cool. And if you guys want to reach out and maybe share some of the things that uh, that have worked for you, or if uh, even if you disagree with some of the things that, that I do, if you have some better ideas for me, I always appreciate the feedback. So other than that, I hope that tonight's episode may have offered you some tips, maybe taking some of the mystery out of the way if you're brand new to the fruit fly game. And uh, other than that, I hope you guys enjoyed it. And as usual, thanks all for listening and catch up with you guys again soon.